From the Los Angeles Times, this is The Envelope, the podcast, your ultimate guide to award season. I'm one of your hosts, Ivan Villarreal. And I'm your other host, Mark Olson. Every week, our podcast showcases key voices across both TV and film. Mark, how is your week going? It's good. As we're having this conversation, some local theaters, both the New Beverly and the American Cinematheque, are like announcing new programs. It feels like movie theaters are coming back. We're sort of like getting back to something like normal. I know a friend of mine was like, hey, like, do you want to rent out a movie theater for In the Heights and just have us and our friends come and like just watch it in peace? We're all vaccinated. And within like minutes, everyone's like, yes, let's do it. Let's do it. So I'm very (laughs) excited about sitting in a movie theater seat again. But at a private screening like that will be exciting because like dancing is allowed. I have to put like a clause that no one can come in if they're going to record me dancing. Well, it will be dark. (laughs) Well, the lights, Mark, from the screen. You can't be too careful. Now, Yvonne, as we're talking, we're on Zoom here, and you have sort of a special themed background this week. Can you describe it for people? Well, it's a scene from WandaVision, uh, and it's Wanda and Vision elevated above their couch, And if you haven't seen the series, I'll just leave it at that. But I just wanted to pay tribute to this week's episode because I'm chatting with Elizabeth Olsen, who starred in one of the most talked about series this year. She reprised her role as the superhero character Wanda Maximoff, a.k.a. Scarlet Witch, in the hit series WandaVision on Disney+. It's the MCU's first original series on the streaming platform, And it explored how Wanda sort of copes with the lasting effects of the Avengers movie, all while paying tribute to classic sitcoms. And Elizabeth talks about what it was like leaning into the comedy. It just felt like I shook my body up as an actor. It felt like I had to use everything that I went to school for and, you know, theater school. And I was now using all these tools that I had that were really uh, rusty. It really felt like it was stretching a lot of muscles that I don't get to stretch. You know, Yvonne, recently, I think it was on the MTV Movie Awards, Elizabeth Olsen and her WandaVision co-star Catherine Hahn, they did sort of a pantomime, like, superpower fight, but with obviously no special effects or fireballs coming out of their hands. (laughs) And it was really fun to see them do it just as people. Oh, they're so good in this series. And, you know, I talked to Elizabeth a little bit about Catherine, too, so it, it was fun, you know. I'm a big fan of both of them. We'll be back with Yvonne and Elizabeth after this quick break. Hey everyone, Tim Cash here, host of Prime Video Presents, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of your favorite Amazon originals. Now, I know we've all been watching a ton of TV shows and movies in this past year, and if you're anything like me, you've turned on the incredible slate of Amazon originals on Prime Video. Whenever I finish watching a show or film, I always want to hear the -the behind-the-scenes stories of how these ideas were brought to life. And that is exactly what we do on Prime Video Presents. Join me for conversations with legendary director and writer Steve McQueen about how he created his fantastic anthology series, Small Axe. First-time creator Little Marvin on his smash hit horror series, Them. Paul Bettany and Alan Ball on one of my favorite movies this year, Uncle Frank, and many more. It all starts May 7th, right here on Prime Video Presents. Subscribe now for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. 
Welcome back to The Envelope. Here's Yvonne's conversation with Elizabeth Olson. Elizabeth, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Well, there was never a question whether WandaVision would be must-see TV, but were you surprised by the level of chatter it generated week to week? Like, did you see the way fans were engaging with it? I don't know why it was never a question. I definitely um, (laughs) felt like it was a question. I feel like our show starts with us almost not playing to our Marvel strengths with our fans. And then we told all the people that had just gone on the ride who maybe don't watch Marvel things, oh, but don't forget, we're also the superhero <laughs> story. So I, I, I definitely thought there was a question of whether or not people would go on the journey with us. And I'm still surprised because I've been in England. I was in England until like 10 days ago playing this character on a different project. I wasn't even in London. Like I was in like a small town. Like I really didn't have a connection with what was going on in the zeitgeist with the show unless people were trying to explain to me what was happening. And then I came home and there was a drag brunch in Minnesota. And that's when I realized, oh, I get it now. Because you have to kind of reach a certain pop culture space before you can have that kind of honoring Yeah, people were having virtual viewing parties, like people that didn't know each other were coming together. And even just seeing like how the fan theories were being shared and developed, like how people were sort of really zeroing in on details and trying to connect the dots. It just seemed like everyone was finding a way to it. I mean, that's so exciting. I mean, my my mom figured out how to watch it and she doesn't have a smart TV. She would go over to her friend's home and watch it with them every weekend. And she's never done that with anything. So that to me was very sweet that she made that effort. And I think the thing that I find really interesting is this idea of crossing generations of an audience and having one generation already liking Marvel, like younger kids or young adults, And then their parents or grandparents are also watching it for the nostalgia. And then there being this kind of crossover explanation of like this other level that maybe they don't get. And so I I think hearing those stories was really sweet. Well, I have to say I was intimidated. I mean, I don't know the Marvel Universe well. It's overwhelming to me because I feel like I'm too far behind to jump in now. But I felt like I was missing out on this moment. So I sort of relied on guides that my colleague Tracy Brown wrote. They were stellar. And I also got a very like sweet crash course from my six-year-old nephew, Ben. He walked me through that first episode. Shout out to Ben. I'm sort of curious, like what show from your youth or even now has filled you with that much anticipation of this like week to week, I have to check in? I think Game of Thrones filled up for me. I, you know, I had a brother who was like really, he really controlled what I consumed because I was five years younger than him and I could have very easily liked boy bands, but he shamed me into not liking most pop culture moment things uh, when I was in elementary school, junior high and high school. And so he would like, put this Stella DVD in front of me and I just wouldn't get any of the jokes (laughs) or he'd make me watch 
the office Christmas special from the British show. And I like my ears couldn't like figure out the language. Um, because it was all happening so fast and I had an untrained ear. And then like he made me listen to like eels when I was in high school. So like, I really do feel like I've missed out on some like big cultural moments because of like shame. <laughs> Which is awful. It's never too late to catch up. Nostalgia's in. Just go back. Use this time as your excuse. Well, grief, you know, isn't something most of us want to confront. And yet many of us have been forced to in this past year. And you've really done heavy exploration in this area. You starred in the 2008 Facebook watch drama, Sorry for Your Loss, and you played Lee, a young widow grappling with unexpected loss of her husband. And we see Wanda coping with the suffering and pain of her own traumas. Like, how have the characters of Lee and Wanda shaped either your relationship with grief or your attention to your own mental health? The interesting thing with Sorry for Your Loss was it was my first experience in realizing that people really want to talk about um, the people they've lost, that to not engage in conversation in order to avoid an awkward moment isn't necessarily what the people want to experience who have gone through the loss. And I think that was my biggest takeaway from making that show was that idea of keeping someone alive as well as the continued relationship you continue to have with someone who's passed away, that it's not a relationship that stops in time. It's an ongoing relationship of dealing with that person's existence, even though they're not there. And then when we were prepping to go to WandaVision, I was finishing season two of Sorry for Your Loss and, and um, Jack Schaefer, our creator of WandaVision and Mary Lovanos, our producer, we had some good Valley Mexican food and they pitched the season to me and told me that the episodes were based on not fully, but loosely on the stages of grief. <laughs> and they're like, and I know you're just, you're still doing your show. And, and Jack was really curious if there is a way that we could do something different that we haven't explored in Sorry for Your Loss. And I, I just said it is different because it's a totally different character with totally di different circumstances. So it just is different. Like everyone's grief, even if you're an actor portraying grief, there are two different characters in two different worlds going through a process and it's unique to everyone. I think the smartest thing with WandaVision is creating a show about grief that isn't just a show about grief. Like people aren't going to say, oh, you should really watch WandaVision. It's this really moving portrait of grief. They're going to say you should watch WandaVision because it's, oh, funny and weird. And they're kind of crossing genres and tone. And it's a weird love song to nostalgic television. And, and then it's also about her dealing with her mental health and this trauma all of a sudden. Like, so it's, I think, to make it palatable for people to get a wider audience and maybe to even move people more is when you hide the grief. What excited you when you heard about what they wanted to do here? Like, what were your hopes that you wanted for Wanda now that she was center stage? And how did you and Jack sort of collaborate on what we eventually saw on screen? Well, what was really fun for me is that with these Avenger movies, you know, I'm not in like a, 
I'm not in like a Thor even, you know, where you can be like number two or three. I, I am really a, a piece of the puzzle, but I have to, you know, make decisions of what happens in between films for myself or what happened in her past. And so it felt like Jack like went into my brain and saw what I had thought and she put it to life. You know, I had these bones, but I didn't have the tissue and I didn't have, you know, I didn't have like the intricate veins or whatever. And she really fleshed out this woman's journey. And what was exciting to me was getting to really create a three-dimensional character. And what was what I was really looking forward to was allowing her to be funny. Because <laughs> it's hard to make a woman with a Slavic accent funny. You know, it's just hard. And like, not like, you know, Slavic people aren't funny because they're hilarious, but the humor is different. Like I studied in Russia, the humor is, is different. And that was never my role in the Avenger movies. Like everyone was, you know, being funny and funny and funny and clever and, you know, snarky. And I was always the like heart um, was kind of where my level was. But um, it was, it was really nice to get to be funny. Well, I was going to say, like, how did it feel playing her in a string of sitcoms? Like, did it feel like you got to know her on a different level? Did it click things into place for you? I think it shook things up for me instead of playing into something that that was already laid down in the other films. And so it really got I just kind of shook it up. Like Paul was talking the other day when we were doing an interview about um he was like, I just trusted that it's my face. <laughs> so so people are going to think it's my character. <laughs> and, you know, to an extent, he's right. The writing is for these characters and these relationships with different circumstances. So you just play the truth of those situations. And I think what was most fun for me was playing with her awareness level of knowing that there is this other element knocking on the door of the sitcom the actual reality and what those in-between moments felt like of being pulled between two worlds. And so I think in episode three, in the 70s episode, to get to create an ending with Paul that feels slightly off, that was really fun for me. Talk to me about the prep work. I know you did a fair amount of binge watching of some classics to get a sense of the tones of each era. You watch the Dick Van Dyke show, the Brady Bunch, the Mary Tyler Moore show, Bewitched, and I'm sure many, many more. Is there one show or one character you found especially enjoyable or illuminating? Yeah, I think the one that I never watched was Malcolm in the Middle. It was the most like Dick Van Dyke. It was slapstick comedy and physical comedy. And it was very funny in a strange time in television, I think, stylistically. Um, but it was very funny and charming. And it was it just felt so similar to the Dick Van Dyke show. I think the thing that I always enjoy as an actor is getting to play different time periods and getting to transform, you know, your inflection, your voice, your manners, how you walk. And I think this show reminded me, because sometimes on film you forget that you have legs and the way you move through a space is really important because you don't see your legs. <laughs> and, um, and this show was so physical and it just, it just felt like I shook my body up as an actor. It felt like I had to use everything 
that I went to school for and, you know, theater school. And I was now using all these tools that I had that were really uh, rusty, which is great when you have film because there are multiple takes and it's long and you can retrain yourself. But it really felt like it was stretching a lot of muscles that I don't get to stretch. What era did you feel most comfortable in and what era felt like this feels awkward or uncomfortable for me? What was awkward for me was the first episode. It was 50s. I think it was also awkward because it was a live audience and I really didn't understand intuitively how to play to the camera and not the audience with the audience there. And so when I watched that episode, I'm like, God, I'm really like, it's like I'm like a child at theater camp in this. Like I'm really playing to the audience. But then I remembered that they kind of did have an element of playing to the audience in the Dick Van Dyke show. But anyway, so that one, I felt like it was the first two days is when we filmed it. So it really just felt like it wasn't an easy transition. It was just like, bam, and you're, you know, you're just there. And, you know, you're failing in front of people at the time. (laughs) And I started to feel really a lot more comfortable just the more we did it. So the 60s and 70s are different in kind of like posturing and a woman starting to, to become more of a independent thinking creature and that was allowed on television. So there's just like shifts like that that were fun, but you still had the same kind of energy and physical humor. And then the thing I just loved was when we filmed the Modern Family-ish episode because mm-hmm. I just was so freaking tired. We had been working, I think, for three months. It was right before Christmas. And I just felt that way. And I felt like, well, I'm going to try this. And if it doesn't work, who cares? Like, that's kind of... That was kind of my attitude, which is kind of the attitude of that genre. So I think that was that felt that felt easy enough in in some ways. You touched on this a little bit earlier, but did you have any takeaways about the way female characters, particularly wives and mothers, sort of evolved through the decades? Yeah, we definitely wanted to continue that Mary Tyler Moore thread of the modern. She's She was always modern for her time. She was always wearing pants before they became fashionable. And so that was something that we kept an eye on. And then, you know, you go into the 70s and all of a sudden you have Vietnam and then you have this obsession with the nuclear family trying to present perfection to the world. And so it, there's just this weird hypocrisy during that time, what was on television and what was actually happening in the world. And so we try and put a bit of that spirit. Like that's when it looks most false. That's when that's when um the exteriors are on a stage and there's fake grass. And that's that's like almost when we gotta be our creepiest because it was creepy if you think about what they're trying to project and what was really going on. So I feel like our show having that be be an episode where the, the facade really started to come down, I felt worked on multiple levels. More of Yvonne's conversation with Elizabeth Olson is coming up next. Stay with us. Hey everyone, Tim Cash here, host of Prime Video Presents, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of your favorite Amazon originals. Now, I know we've all been watching a ton of TV shows and movies in this past year, and if you're anything like me, you've turned on the incredible slate of Amazon originals on Prime Video. 
Whenever I finish watching a show or film, I always want to hear the behind-the-scenes stories of how these ideas were brought to life. And that is exactly what we do on Prime Video Presents. Join me for conversations with legendary director and writer Steve McQueen about how he created his fantastic anthology series, Small Axe. First-time creator Little Marvin on his smash hit horror series, Them. Paul Bettany and Alan Ball on one of my favorite movies this year, Uncle Frank, and many more. It all starts May 7th, right here on Prime Video Presents. Subscribe now for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Welcome back to The Envelope. Here's the rest of Yvonne's conversation with Elizabeth Olsen. She plays Wanda Maximoff in the series WandaVision on Disney+. You said this earlier, but there is a fair amount of slapstick comedy. Like, what was it like for you to sort of sink your teeth into that? Like, did leaning into your comedic side get you thinking about doing more comedy? I've been, like, begging people to cast me in comedies. (laughs) It's just, um, it just doesn't come knocking on my door for some reason. I need to stop playing, like, sad, disturbed women. Um, But, um... I think comedy is a muscle and you only can figure out if you can do it if you if you if you train the muscle. And so, yes, I would love to do more comedy. And this specifically, it wasn't just, you know, the timing of delivering a joke. It was situational humor and a lot of just physical, especially the, the, the scene with me and Tiana Paris when we're in the seventies and she's coming in and I'm pregnant, I'm trying to hide my pregnancy. I think that was when I got to do the most physical comedy and, um, it just felt so fun and freeing. It felt, it feels really freeing to get to do double takes and stupid facial expressions that are are too much, but that, that was a really fun couple of days. Did it bring back memories of college? It brought back memories of, courses in college, but like truly mostly the most muggy time in my life when I was in the chorus of every musical in high school, because I can't really sing. So I would always be these like chorus characters. And I always had to like let myself be seen in a really hammy way. And it reminded me more of those moments (laughs) in my life. (laughs) What kind of comedy do you think you'd want to do? I like lots of different kinds of comedy. I think camp is really fun to play. I think camp is very fun. And then I also think like Raising Arizona with the Coen brothers. It's these characters in situations that are so absurd, trying so hard to figure them out, I think is what I I enjoy most as an audience member. We need desperately a buddy comedy with you and Catherine. Han, give me your best Catherine story. Oh gosh. The one that comes to my head always, because it was when I was just starting to get to know her and I was pretty intimidated by her, even though she was really disarming, was we were rehearsing for the live show for the 50s episode. And she was bringing in all these groceries into my kitchen. And, um, she had like a carton of fake eggs. They're all rubber eggs. And it dropped to the floor. And she goes, oh, my jade egg. <laughs> and like just without missing 
a beat. It was, and, and the other thing that she does all the time is she burps loudly on set and then goes, excuse me. <laughs> so it's just all these little, little things that she does. It feels fun. It's just like fun for the crew. It's fun for the cast. It's including everyone in on a joke. It, it's um, even if she doesn't need a burp, I'm sure she's just doing it just to break the ice a little bit, you know? Oh, that sounds so precious. Um, there have been some highbrow opinions in recent years of the superhero genre. How do you feel about it? Like, how has appearing in them changed any hangups you previously had of the genre? I mean, it's a, it's a tricky question, right? Because I think people who have hangups talk about this, like, monopolizing of cinemas, right? And, like, this idea of, like, how do we get people into independent cinemas so that they, cause they're all closing down everywhere, um, especially after this time of lockdown. And so that's a, a, a part of the conversation. And the other part of the conversation is being a part of them or acting in them. And I think of any large commercial film kind of the same. They are a sort of pop culture version of Greek stories or like the original through lines and character arcs that have been told throughout time for hundreds of years. That's what people connect to. And that's what Star Wars is. That's what that's what all of them are. And they're a hero's journey. If you have an opinion about this superhero specifically, fine. I think like I felt stupid the other day because I said, oh, I'll never go back. Or not the other day. It was like a couple months ago. I said, I'll never go back on social media. But I think it was stupid for me to say that because you really should never say never. Um, is how I feel. Because you can create quality. I mean, I, I was really happy to be a part of WandaVision because we weren't continuing a formula. I mean, I thought it was the perfect way for Marvel to enter television, which is by writing a love song to television. We got to play with the form that way. And that was exciting to be a part. And so I just think, I don't know, I understand it from someone who loves cinemas and loves independent cinemas and wants to see art films in movie theaters. So I think that's an, that's like an issue above my head that I think people who run major studios need to get together and figure out how to help that. Because I don't think just as an actor, you can really do anything about it unless you have a lot of cash flow and just want to buy some property. <laughs> well, how has being in the Marvel universe like sharpened your focus on the work you do outside of them? Like, and what's it like going between indie and Marvel? I mean, I think it made me like razor sharp recently, um, especially because of this rebirth of remembering what I love about my job during our first initial lockdown in between filming WandaVision. We had six months off and it really reminded me, I went back and just watched such great films. I read books and I was just like, God, I love storytelling. And I forgot because I really don't love certain aspects of being an actor. And then it was just this space to, to be able to remember what's so beautiful about being a creative in you know, selfish ways and in ways that unite people and how we can inform how people think and develop. And um, it's really important. So that reminded me of, of that. And now I feel like even more razor focused on what's a fun story to tell, 
what would be most interesting for me to do on a personal level? What do I want to put out in the world as someone developing stories? Yeah, so it's it's been a really interesting couple, year, like year and a half or however long it's mm-hmm. The The ninth episode of WandaVision is titled The Series Finale. And I know you've been asked this before, but in Hollywood, things can change in a day. Have there been talks about a season two? Like, would would you consider it? If there have, I haven't. I haven't had any of them. Um, I think Paul probably has loads of ideas <laughs> on season two. Um, again, though, I went straight to a movie with this character that is what happens after WandaVision. So it's it's weirder for me to talk about it because I'm like, well, there's this whole thing I just did. It'll, the, the story continues, I guess, you know, for me in, in, in ways. <laughs> Let's talk about that. Scarlet Witch will be in Doctor Strange too, and you recently wrapped production. How was the experience? Like, how was it being on a Marvel set in the middle of a pandemic? It's one of the safest sets you can be on. You know, there's a lot of funding to keeping everyone safe and healthy, including like all of your extras to make cities look like cities. And so I really appreciated that. And I I just think part of your job as an actor on these movies with these like, because you're filming for like six months, is to keep the crew happy. And it's really hard to check in when you can't see people's expressions on their face. So you end up, there's like a lot of overcompensating on my part to try and just be like, well, I want to make sure everyone's having a good time and they're awake and like they're fine and happy. And um, and I do think that's a part of your job as an actor on those films. I'm sure some people don't and because it takes away, you know, energy from what you're doing. But I, I think it's important. So I think that's too bad with how we now relate to one another on a set. But I mean, it's, beyond safe and we never had a spread on WandaVision or on Doctor Strange. So I feel very grateful that, and I think everyone felt grateful to have a job and especially a job where you got to work with people in person. That's a novelty. You recently signed on for the new HBO Max limited series, Love and Death, and you'll be playing Candy Montgomery. Uh, For those that don't know, she was convicted of murdering her friend and neighbor, Betty Gore uh, in Texas in like the 1980s. Where are you at in the prep process for that? Just starting. I mean, it's really, it's really fun. The scripts are um, are fantastic. And I'm really excited to work with everyone that they have involved so far. Yeah, we don't even know exactly where we're shooting yet. We're going to start filming in September and... I have listened to a couple podcasts about to read a book. And I um, I think there's one way to look at the story, which is just through facts and the news. And then the way that David B. Kelly's figured out how to tell the story is so entertaining. And so I'm just really excited. And Leslie Linklater is going to direct all the episodes. And she has such of an amazing visual palette of what she wants to do with this show. So I'm... I'm excited because it still feels like a genre piece for me, and so I, and I, which I really enjoy. Is there an accent involved? There will be. 
Okay. <laughs> Everyone I will do likes my the damnedest. <laughs> Have you started practicing that? Yeah. No, not yet. I think like I love being an actor for all these things. There are all these websites you can go to and you have people who were born in certain different decades and you get to hear different regional accents throughout ages and age groups. And there's so many different things you get to choose from beyond just the person. Because I, I think there's a fine line when you play someone who who's really existed in the world, but you're telling a, a point of view of the story that might have an element of style to it. You should always remember as an actor, I think that there's, there is some freedom in it because it is a portrayal and a perspective of a story. You know, it's not hyper-realism either. So it's it's fun to start that process. Well, before we let our guests go, we always like to know what they've been watching, binging. What have you been watching lately? I know you just finished a project, but... I have, I mean, I... I've been watching the Dodgers since I got back home because I was so excited to watch the Dodgers <laughs> and, and that was painful, but I'm happy about where we've ended up. <laughs> um, and you know, the thing that I'm really excited for the world to see that I got to see a little earlier was Aziz's third season of, of um, Master of None. Master. I got to see, I think the final edit of it and it's, amazing. Have you seen that yet? I haven't. For our listeners, it focuses in on Denise, played by Lena Waithe. She sort of takes center stage for the final season. Yeah, Naomi Aki is just a phenomenal actress as well. Mm -hmm. And um, I could watch her for five more hours or however long it is. Very good. Well, I will ask one more if you don't mind. We're an LA outlet. You grew up in the Valley Tell me what that was like. What are your hangout spots that you sort of return to? I am a lover of the Valley. <laughs> the Valley is everything special in Los Angeles to me. <laughs> and there is a fishmonger in Sherman Oaks at the Joint. It's called the Joint Eatery. And it's the best fish you can buy in the Valley. So I'll say that. And they also have phenomenal coffee. And when they're a restaurant which he hasn't been this whole time because he started doing such a great job as a grocer. It's amazing. And you can also get like pre-made dinners and pizzas and make amazing sourdough bread. And it's just, it is one of LA's finest spots. That's like the best Yelp review here on the envelope. See, this is what you get, guys. (laughs) Yvonne, what stuck out to you from that conversation? The show like really is so wild for how it like mixes up tones and sort of genres and styles. Like it, I think it is not like the superhero TV show that anybody was quite expecting. Yeah, you know, I'm a big fan of Elizabeth's dramatic work. You know, we have Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene, Silent House, Ingrid Goes West. And I still wish more people would find Sorry for Your Loss on Facebook. She gives such an emotionally striking performance. But the work that she did on WandaVision was fantastic. It felt game-changing the way she switched things up and sort of embraced the comedy. And I would like to see her play that up more on film. And, you know, she mentioned the Coen brothers. Can can you call up the Coen brothers, Mark? <laughs> I did not have them in my phone. Maybe an email, whatever. But I think she would do well in that genre. 
Oh, yeah. And I thought it was interesting to me how thoughtful she was about the place of Marvel movies within the larger ecosystem of Hollywood, what she as a performer can sort of do as far as big studio movies versus independent films, you know, smaller films. Like it was, I found her very thoughtful about like what her sort of like place in the system can be. Yeah, like sometimes you just can't avoid that these things are what sells and she's found a way to have a little bit of both in her career, embracing both, not shunning, you know, one thing for the other. Well, she mentioned what she was watching. What have you been watching, Mark? You know, I have to say, what really is one of my favorite things that I've seen so far this year, it's a movie from 1968 that's been like restored and re-released. It's called The Story of a Three-Day Pass. It was directed by Melvin Van Peebles. It's actually his first film before he made a movie called Watermelon Man and then also his landmark Sweet Sweet Badass song. This is like a movie that like you read about or like I've heard about but I've never really had an opportunity to see. And it sort of has the energy of like a late 60s French New Wave movie, but it also has this like more theatrical quality and kind of a moodier quality to it that it's like it was really a fantastic movie. I was so excited to like after many years of like knowing about it and not seeing it to actually get a chance to to see it. And also it's one of those things where like it feels so contemporary, like it very easily could be a movie that was made like now. Hmm. Well, you know, some of the stuff I've been watching lately, which is Hacks, which I highly recommend, Mare of Easttown, Pose. Although can I, I just have to stop and ask you. I am enjoying Hacks, but, like, I want to know your thoughts on, the like, the release pattern for that because they're releasing, like, two episodes a week and it's, like, strangely frustrating because it's, like, you can't quite binge it, but you also, it's not exactly week to week. It's, like, it seems to me like an unusual way to release a show. Yes, I mean, it's hard for me to, like, comment on that because I they gave press access to... <laughs> like the first five at once. So I like... Screener privilege. Yeah, screener privilege. I inhaled it. But uh, I know my mom shares the same frustration of like, I want more, but this is all they've given me. And I'm like, it's kind of like, you know, it's a a half binge. It's a semi binge. Like here's two, but we're also going to make you wait a little bit. I... I kind of like it. It gives me the space to watch other things and not sort of get like too hooked on something at once. I kind of like it. And then as we're recording this, Mayor of Easttown, there's like a few episodes left. Now, wait, have you seen the ending yet? I have not. That's where my screener privileges stop. (laughs) So, Mark, you're back in the hosting chair next week. Who are you talking to? I'm speaking with Barry Jenkins, director and showrunner of The Underground Railroad, based on Colson Whitehead's Pulitzer Prize-winning novel of the same name. You know, what are we doing when we acknowledge this history, you know, and what role are we playing in the recreation of these images? And I think in creating these images and telling these stories, I'm after a feeling, man. The discussion surrounding this series has really been enlightening, so I'm really looking forward to this conversation, Mark. Oh, Barry is just a true joy to talk to. So it it is, I think, a really special conversation, and that has nothing to do with, with me. The Envelope, the podcast, is hosted by me, Yvonne Villarreal. And me, Mark Olson. Our producer is Asal Asanapur, and our executive producer is Abby Fentress Swanson. Our audio engineer is Mike Heflin. Special thanks to Mike for making up our theme song. Thanks for listening and see you next week.